Haynes, and welcome back to the HB Media Minute, uh, Haynes and Boone's podcast focused on legal developments and trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, IP, open government, and First Amendment law. I'm Nathan Koppel, the Director of Media Relations for Haynes and Boone, and will moderate today's discussion, which is about a very hot topic, the legal framework that protects tech companies like Google, Twitter, and Facebook from liability for third-party content, such as reader posts, YouTube videos, and Instagram posts. This legal shield is now facing much greater scrutiny with critics saying that internet companies need to bear more responsibility to police the content that they host. Today, we've invited Haynes & Boone Associate Wesley Lewis to join us to explore these developments. Wesley is a member of Haynes & Boone's media and entertainment litigation practice, and he regularly represents media clients on disputes involving intellectual property, free speech, libel and defamation, copyright, and many other issues. Before we get started, I'd like to offer our usual disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Wesley, thanks for joining today. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start by talking about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. There has been so much written recently about this provision. It's become, uh, you know, uh, the topic of a lot of debate. So let's start there. Can you tell me a little bit about Section 230? Sure. So Section 230 was part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And and what it does is establish a paradigm for how the law deals with content on the internet. And many commentators have have described Section 230 as the 26 words that created the internet. Um, and, And what Section 230 does is it establishes that Content uh, platforms such as Facebook or Twitter or Wikipedia um, are not responsible for the content that users publish on on those platforms. Um, If you think of traditional outlets such as newspapers or broadcasters, um, those businesses can be held liable for what they publish for defamation or um, any variety of other causes of action. Um, This could be workable in the case of the nightly news where Mm -hmm. publishers can exercise control over uh, the content that they put out. Um, But that's just proven to be completely unworkable in the context of uh, the internet. Yeah, you you say Uh, that the 26 words that created the, I mean, the, the internet, it feels like would be scarcely imaginable if you had, if tech companies could be held liable for the content on their sites. Absolutely. The internet would just be a vastly different place if um, every social media platform were uh, you know, held to account for the content that, that its users post on there. If you think of um, comment sections on a, you know, a news website or um, somebody's Twitter account, uh, there's simply no way that uh, a company like Twitter or Facebook could police that in such a way that they would be able to allow that sort of content without legal protections that establish that they're not responsible for it. So, um, yeah, it is the the 26 words that created the internet. Um, 
and, and really kind of established a paradigm for how we think about uh, content on the internet, you know? Yeah. But that said, it sounds like there's, um, it's re- in some ways really feels like the backbone of the internet, but, but all the same, there's a growing chorus of people calling for, you know, for the administration, the Trump administration, and also Democrats to, to dial back these protections. What's the, let's, let's start on the, on the Republican side of the aisle. I think president Trump last week had a, an all caps tweet to repeal section two thirty. Um, Right. Yeah. So what, what's what's troubling the Trump administration? Then we'll talk about d- Democratic criticism. Yeah. So I think it's important to situate this this conversation with the con- within the context of, a, of the broader debate. Um, and that is, you know, throughout the last several years, we've seen that social media companies have become incredibly powerful forces in our lives. Um, and the law and the world is struggling to um, figure out how to address that. You know, the, the question is, how should Internet companies wield this tremendous power that they've found themselves with and how much responsibility um, attends that power? So there has been a there's been a lot of public debate about um, how Section 230 allows content providers and platforms like Twitter and Facebook to um, to facilitate content, but at the same time to to police that content. And so, uh, P- President Trump is a is a vocal critic of Section 230, um, and, and the reason that he is so hostile to it is um, there's a growing perception that there is an anti-conservative bias uh, in the so-called mainstream media um, and, and that that bias has sort of seeped into social media and the internet in a way that is harming conservative voices and speech on the internet. So um, if we think about uh, commentators like Alex Jones being removed from social media platforms, um, other sort of controversial, traditionally conservative voices being um, quote unquote deplatformed, the theory is that somehow these social media companies are deprioritizing or minimizing or, or stifling speech on these platforms with which they disagree, um, either through algorithms or by removing objectionable, objectionable speech. And so, uh, you know, pr- President Trump and others have called for um, the removal of some of these uh protections in response to what they see as anti-conservative bias. In, in some ways, the companies are really showing that they they can and are policing the content. And uh, I guess the uh, Trump administration is, is saying, if you're going to police content, you, you better do it in a way that's fair. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, Republican voices are now calling for Section 230 reforms, for example, that would precondition um, the sort of immunity that we were discussing earlier on um, political neutrality or some sort of content agnosticism. Um, you know, Senator Josh Hawley, for example, introduced a bill that would require platforms to be neutral and, and actually to submit to independent third-party audit to ensure that they were, you know, that their algorithms were politically neutral and were not uh, 
disparately impacting certain political you know, perspectives over others. I understand there was also a recent DOJ report about suggesting possible reforms. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Department of Justice recently released a report um, calling for similar revisions to Section 230. These these revisions would uh, have what they're calling bad Samaritan carve-outs and other provisions that would effectively limit the ability for platforms to remove objectionable content or, or content with which they disagreed on, on the theory, again, that, that Section 230 requires or should require content neutrality. And are, are these reform efforts still kind of in the early stages? Do we have uh, have any of them gathered much support? You know, I think that there is a lot of support for reform to Section 230 um, across the aisle, regardless of you know your your political persuasion. So there is bipartisan, I would say, distaste for certain provisions of, of Section 230. Well, tell me, this may be one of the few policy discussions that's unifying Democrats and Republicans. Uh, what are what are you what are you hearing from Democrats in, in the way of criticism? What? Well, they're unified in their in their uh, dislike for Section 230 in certain respects, but but the reasons for their for their distaste are, are different. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, on on the left hand side of the aisle, uh, prominent Democrats like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi have uh, criticized Section 230 um, for for almost exactly the opposite reason that that the conservatives have been criticizing it. And that is the content providers are often seen as using Section 230 as a way to avoid taking responsibility for the content on their platforms. And in the context of, you know, an an election season in which fake news and uh, misinformation is running rampant through social media channels. Um, you know, there, there have been calls from prominent Democrats to either repeal or amend Section 230 in such a way that places additional responsibility on platform providers such as Twitter or Facebook to to moderate the content of that speech. Um, and also uh, in the context of um, online bullying and harassment and trolling and, and, and sort of inappropriate behavior on, on social media platforms um, like that, there, are, there have been repeatedly calls to place more of an onus on uh, platforms and social media companies to police that, that, that sort of behavior. And I, th- I think you alluded to it earlier. It sounds like some of these companies are starting to develop their own infrastructure around trying to curate and moderate content. Um, I guess it's sort of yeah. the time-honored approach of trying to police yourselves before the, the federal government does in a way. <laughs> yeah, it's been something that they've that, that social media platforms have been struggling with for a while. Um, you know, there's not really a any sort of unified perspective on how uh, on how they they are dealing with this. You know, Twitter has recently started uh, fact checking uh, tweets that they believe to be misleading, including tweets by the president. Um, you know, if they if they believe that it violates their uh, content guidelines, they will flag it. Um, that's that's one response that we've seen. Another response has been. Um, 
you know, until recently, Facebook has been fairly silent on this issue. But just recently, they have, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and others at Facebook have uh, publicly stated that they are going to take a more proactive approach to um, removing misinformation and harmful conspiracy theories from their platform. Um, specifically, I think this week they said that they would be removing um, Holocaust denial conspiracy theories from their platform. So they're taking steps, um, you know, how far they're going to ultimately go remains to be seen. But but that's sort of something that they are continuing to grapple with, um, you know, yeah. especially in the context of this campaign season. Well, I'm, I'm going to pivot now and, and, and ask you about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is another important law that provides legal protection to, to internet companies and has been discussed and occasionally debated. Can you tell me a little bit about that law? Right. Yeah. So, so as you said, this is a slight pivot in that it discusses kind of copyright protection, but I think there are a lot of analogies to be drawn here uh, with Section 230. The, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or the DMCA, like Section 230, allows internet service providers to take a more hands-off approach to third-party content that's hosted on their website. This allows ISPs to host and provide transmission channels for content without without fear of liability for copyright infringement. Um, there's sort of a statutory quid pro quo here that that the DMCA provides what are known as safe harbor protections as long as you comply with certain requirements. And um, in the context of ISPs, they're generally off the hook for third-party copyright infringement on their on their services if they follow these certain rules and meet these certain requirements. So for example, you know, you may have seen on, on websites the notice and takedown uh, links that, that some you know websites will, will host or um, that allow copyright owners to alert the website that there is infringing content on, on their website. And, and they, you know, in order to have these safe harbor protections, websites will need to abide by these notice and takedown protocols. Um, another issue is, um, you know, if, if an ISP is repeatedly receiving notice of, of, of infringement from a particular user, they have to have programs in place that terminate uh, that user if they're repeatedly infringing, things like that. Um, so that's that's in, in broad strokes what's, what the DMCA does. Um, it, it, it similarly allows ISPs to host third-party content um, without fear of, of liability for, for what that content is or whether it's infringing um, in exchange for these sort of these sort of requirements uh, under the law. So how solid is this safe harbor? I mean, is it is it possible that that a company could run afoul of the you know the requirements and, and not be allowed to or not be able to use sort of these safe harbors? Sure. Yeah. So recently we've been seeing a trend in litigation that uh, is typically uh, being brought in the context of, of music copyright infringement lawsuits. But um, what we're seeing happen is content providers such as record labels and, and uh, content owners who own 
copyrights and musical works have been bringing uh, copyright infringement lawsuits against not just uh, what you would consider to be the primary infringers, but but against internet service providers for effectively facilitating copyright infringement on those platforms. Now, normally, uh, an internet service provider would be allowed to claim safe harbor protections, but what these plaintiffs have been doing, um, and some of them successfully, is challenging ISP's entitlement to safe harbor protections. Um, And they're doing that by claiming that these ISPs have not been effectively um, policing conduct on, on their on their ISPs, um, specifically with respect to repeat infringers. So I mentioned earlier that under the DMCA, uh, in order to have safe harbor protection, you need to have a policy in place that uh, terminates or provides for the termination of uh, users that repeatedly infringe on copyrights. Um, you know, we've seen uh, several high-profile cases in recent years in which uh, courts have found that ISPs have waived their safe harbor protection because they have failed to implement and abide by their internal procedures for terminating repeat infringers. Can they, can they potentially, the companies that has face pretty significant liability if they're found to have violated their, uh, their duties? It's, it's, it's huge. It's staggering. Uh, in, in just this uh, last December, in 2019, uh, a jury found Cox Communications liable for a billion dollars in damages stemming from copyright infringement. And the way that that works is under the Copyright Act, there are statutory damages available to to copyright plaintiffs for, for willful infringement. And having lost their safe harbor protections, the floodgates were effectively opened for uh, thousands and thousands of instances of alleged infringement. So having lost that safe harbor protection, uh, Cox was subject to a, to a massive damages award because of just the volume of infringement that, that occurs on on its ISP through through services like BitTorrent and other um, you know third party infringing activities. So it's so every every time someone looks at uh, uh, what a pirated video or something, that could, each one of those could give rise to damages. Well, so it's it's for infringing works, and so what the plaintiffs in the Cox case did is they identified approximately 10,000 works that they mm-hmm. found to be, um, you know, trafficked through BitTorrent channels on the Cox uh, internet mm-hmm. platform. And, uh, you know, with 10,000 allegedly infringed works um, and $100,000 in damage for each instance of infringement, that that becomes mind-bogglingly uh, massive. Just right out of the, you know, just sure. it's a matter of simple uh, multiplication where if, if you have 10,000 works and, and each one costs you $100,000, you are going to be facing astronomical damages numbers. God, it's got to be really scary for companies. In the meantime, I, I understand the Copyright Office is also taking a look at uh, Section 5, 512. Can you tell me what, what that involves? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so this May, the Copyright Office published uh, a long-anticipated report on uh, Section 512, sort of just doing a, a, a check-in on how the safe harbor provisions are working in practice and, and whether or not there needs to be any um, adjustments made to the law. And, and ultimately, they concluded that that the safe harbor protections afforded to ISPs have become um, somewhat imbalanced. Now, this report does not have the force of, of law. It's it's really just sort of a, uh, an indication of the copyright office's stance on on Section Five Twelve. Um, however, you know they made several important suggestions for for um, adjustment that would kind of bring section 5512 into into compliance with how the the legislature that enacted it originally intended it so um you know there are certain provisions of uh the dmca that they have found are sort of out of sync with congress's original intent and and those provisions include as we were discussing earlier, the, the qualifications um, for availing oneself of these safe harbor protections, um, adjustments to how the law handles uh, the implementation and establishment of repeat infringer policies, um, knowledge requirement uh, standards for for taking advantage of safe harbor protections um, and and other sort of technical details in the law that might impact how uh, internet service providers are required to respond to notices of infringement or um, repeat infringement situations that might impact their their liability or how they need to comport themselves to be um, able to take advantage of these safe harbors. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back here for a moment and see so you've been talking today about criticism of Section 230 from Democrats and Republicans uh, and these safe harbor protections, which sound like they're not entirely safe all the time. Um, I, I just got to be thinking this is a very trying time if you're an in-house lawyer at a Twitter or Facebook or Google. So if I were to put you in the shoes of of lawyers at these companies, what level of concern do you have about all these developments? Yeah, there's there's absolutely a lot to keep track of if you're a content lawyer for an internet company right now. Um, you know, I, I think this goes to our, our conversation earlier that, that this is a relatively you know, new situation and new technology, and it's incredibly important uh, in our in our everyday lives. And so, the law and and the world is really struggling to figure out how to impose the right level of restriction uh, on that on that power and and the balance that's required for um, you know maintaining a, a free internet and and how to at the same time. You know, balance that with the need to prevent misinformation or, or harmful false news or um, illegal content. And so the, the law just frankly has not um, caught up with the state of technology. And as a result, um, there's, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of um, discussion of what the appropriate uh, legal framework should be to, to govern these sorts of, 
of companies. And so there's there's a lot going on. Um, you know, that's why you need good lawyers uh, looking at looking at updates to legislation, and um, you know, you need to be constantly keeping apprised of recent developments because these things. Uh, you know, have, have, have a capability of, of changing with, you know, to uh, change the legislation or, um, you know, the courts have been um, wading into these issues as well. And so keeping abreast of, of these sorts of developments is really important if you're, if you're a company like Twitter or Facebook. I'd be curious your thoughts about whether this debate survives the election season. I mean, it's, my hunch is that it would, um, you know, the, the discussion about how we do quality control kind of over our information diet really is in, in many ways central to kind of our ability to function as a democracy, really. Um, but but I'd be curious your thoughts. Do you think we're going to continue to kind of hash out these topics for years to come or, or more to the point after November 2nd? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think – you know, the public discourse may may calm down a bit or change depending on on what happens in you know current politics in the election cycle. Um, but I think in many respects, what we're seeing now in the public discourse regarding uh, Twitter and, and fake news and you know internet companies that that's that's around to stay. And I don't think that that the outcome of uh, any one election is going to change that. It's just a, such a fascinating topic. I'd love to check back with you in six months or however long, because I'm sure there will continue to be developments. There's going to continue to be rulemaking or suggested rulemaking on this. And so just it'll be interesting to see how this this debate evolves. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not going anywhere anytime soon, and it's it's going to be um, an area in which the the law is forced to to change. I think fairly rapidly. So, uh, lots of lots of stay, uh, lots of stay aware of, and and um, I think is a really exciting area of the law. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for being our guide today on this on this very important topic. Um, before we sign off, I'd just like to remind our listeners that you can find our podcast, this podcast, on most of the popular podcast platforms. You can also find it hosted on our website at HanesandBoone.com, along with a lot of other great content from our media and entertainment litigation practice. Um, I invite you to please feel free to reach out to Laura Prather, the head of the firm's media and entertainment litigation practice, or to me if you'd like to suggest topics for future podcasts. Thanks and take care all. Thank you.